The Deviation Podcast. While we were at Corporal's Course, um, the Camp Pendleton, uh, they have this mud run going on, right? And I think it was the first ever Camp Pendleton mud run. Uh, so I was like, hey, let's get a team together. Let's get three males, three females. Let's go do this mud run. Yeah, the military mixed yep. Uh, teams. Yep. And uh, he's like, why? Because <laughs> he did not want to run again, you know? It was like, oh my God. <laughs> but... Uh, we did it. He talked two of his buddies to do it. You know, I talked two of the girls to do it with me. It was like, let's go. Uh, everybody that was in this corpus course with us. <clears throat> you know, so we got a mixed team. And uh, out of the Cap Pendleton, uh, we took first in the mixed team. Yeah. At the Camp Pendleton, the first ever Cap Pendleton mud run. Now, the mud run is so huge, they have to break it down into Saturday, Sunday, and into multiple weekends because they have so many people that enter it. That's awesome. It, it, it's awesome, you know. But when we came back from Okinawa, uh, we did it as a family. It was, you know, my, my husband and I and then our son and daughter. We all That's did it as a family cool. together. <laughs> we, really we didn't cool. take first, but we, we didn't do a mixed team or anything like mm-hmm. that, you know. We all entered individually, but mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty awesome. X amount of years later, we're doing the mud run again, you know. That is really <laughs> awesome. So... Yeah. so so when you were, when you were doing that, and it's getting into force, say it again because now I all, all I can think of is force. F F O R C E force recon. Force recon. Okay. Yeah. So when you were getting into that, what was what was your route? My route, I was uh, uh, a generator mechanic basically. Uh, so I was in the eleven hundred field. Uh, not the 0311, but 11. I was 1142, so I was a generator mechanic. Um, and we basically set up, you know, base camps. So we would go to some place and we would set up the camp. That's cool. So you know, you've been like everywhere then? Not as many places as he has, but yeah. But- yeah, so I mean, he would do the, the six or seven month deployments, mm-hmm. and I would do the one month or two month operation, little operations. You know, I would do it at the home base, like on Camp Pendleton, whereas he would go out of the country or out of the state, you know, for his training. So it just depends. Uh, I mean, there was times we were both gone, but we tried to avoid that as much as possible. Of course. Um, One of the biggest times that we did that, uh, where we both deployed out, I had just come back from a a three and a half, four four month school, and he was flying out to go to Kuwait. And it was like, holy cow, you know, we had to get the kids out of the school. We had to close up the house, put everything on automatic bill pay, find two dog, you know, dog sitter for our two dogs uh, and then move the kids across the country to Florida from California to Florida uh, to where my in-laws could watch them because they're the only ones that could watch our kids. He was either them or our parents, you know, my parents. Uh, but I remember... Uh, Still being a young Marine, you know, having a husband, having a son, and showing up at my parents' door one day, because they still wouldn't talk to me. 
you know, we still didn't have any contact. And uh, I was showing up at their door, knocking on their door. Hi, guys. Here I am. How did that go? <laughs> but, hey. How did that go, man? Hey, I'm your new son-in-law. <laughs> What's up? Look at this big, tall, white dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, went, I, it, it went about as good as you can expect. Okay. I mean, I think they were, they were really uh, thankful that, that Halima had come back. And they were now really excited to see their grandson that, you know, they hadn't really no contact with. And now, and then me, you know, there's that kind of that feeling out process because, you know, I'm supposed to be a Muslim, you know. Short, dark-haired guy. Yeah, probably a cousin. I'm supposed to be a family <laughs> member. And, <laughs> and, and you're not. And I'm everything but. So, um, but now as, as pretty much after that meeting, um, that, that first initial meeting ever since then, it was like, they're like, Hey, we're, we're going to have Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, Muslims don't celebrate Thanksgiving. They don't celebrate any, you know, Western holidays. And they're like, we're going to have Thanksgiving at our house, uh, with, because we want to do it for, for Robert. And we're like, okay, cool. But there was a lot of like. It was a traditional Thanksgiving meal in a very Afghan traditional way. We sat on the floor, on the mat, and and then just little funny things that I'll, I'll never forget. Like we're eating and, and everything, but like the Three Stooges are playing on the TV, you know, in the room. And, you know, Thanksgiving to me was always like family around the table, no out distractions, no nothing. But it was... Uh, it was cool. It was, it was, um... Do you remember your first turkey at my parents' house, baby? Yeah. Do you remember the live turkey? Yeah, that your brother walked down the street <laughs> with a little leash on. Because in, in the Muslim, uh, everything has to be halal. It has to be blessed and, and everything okay. to eat it. Uh, kind like of kosher. Per- okay, that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. um... And so they had to get a live turkey, and they, they there was a farm down the street from where they were. So one of Halima's little brothers had to walk this turkey with a little leash on its foot from the farm to their house. Then the thing was blessed. It was it was killed, and then it was cooked right right there. Oh yes. So yeah. That was his first and, Thanksgiving and I, at my And birthday. I ate that watching the Three Stooges. And it was delicious because my mom made it. And now, uh, out of the five of us kids, you know, and Robert, my mom's favorite is Robert. (laughs) All the kids know it. Oh, yes, they do. And, uh, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I'm proud of that title. I I wish, whoever is listening, I wish you could see this setup right now. Because (laughs) Liam and I both have these giant smiles on our faces. And Rob just sitting here completely straight-faced. Not anymore, but a second ago. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you can't you can't laugh at facts. I mean, it's just it's, it's what it is. Oh, it's just so good, though. Uh, and that's, I mean, to go from where things ended off just before you left for boot yeah. camp to where they've gotten to. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but we really uh, we really didn't give them much of a chance to deny anything after I showed up at their door, you know, after we all showed up at their door. It was like, hi, 
you're gonna we're gonna pick up right where we left off, you know, but on a happier note. It's like okay, here we are. So and then we made it a point to go back often to start establishing that relationship again, uh, because I I do believe that family is important. You know, uh, for me, um, the Marine Corps was my family for a long, long time. You know, um, especially with both of us being Marines, we have a lot, a lot of best friends in the Marine Corps. Uh, we have one guy that I served with. Heck, we didn't see him for almost 20 years. And then he brings his family back from Kansas to visit California. And we pick up right where we left off. You know, they stayed with us. It was, it was, it was awesome. But for us to know this couple 20-something years before and then to have them come back oh, yeah. and visit us again was just phenomenal. But you'd literally pick up right where you leave off. That's probably one of the best things about the military is, like my grandfather said, you won't have a lot of friends, but the friends you do have are going to be the best oh, friends yeah. ever. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that, there's, there's that story that Halima just told about that couple is it, that's proof. I mean, we hadn't seen these people in 20 years yeah. and as soon as they walked through the door it was like nothing it was like we saw them yesterday yep so and and literally you're catching up with them and there was not a quiet moment in the house the whole time they were there you know it, it was phenomenal uh, you don't get that with a lot of people especially if you don't have that i i think that bond mm-hmm. you know so there's a lot of camaraderie in the marine corps that uh we do miss you know, but that's one of the biggest things for Warfighter made. You know, we get that bond constantly. We bu- we're building it again with younger and younger Marines, you know, that are helping out, that are coming into the fold. Before we go too, f- too much further into Warfighter made, I have a question backing up just a okay. little bit. So you're... Okay, this is not even a slightly smooth segue. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so you're, you, you went on a deployment before the two of you mm-hmm. met, mm-hmm. and then you obviously went on many other deployments afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, the next deployment you went on, had you guys had a child yet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Was that deployment really different from your first one just because you, I mean, you had a family at home? Or? No, I don't think so. Um one thing about Halima's is Halima's very, um, I don't have to worry about anything when I'm not there because Halima's got it 100%. And, you know, our relationship hasn't always been fantastic. Uh, you know, in, in 96, my mom died of a drug overdose. She had, uh, a son, my half little brother who was two at the time and Halima and I had our son who was a year and a half at the time and now I am my little brother's guardian and um, that caused a lot of issues between us from the fact that basically my son's uncle who's like not even a year older than him uh, is now living with us. He's got some problems because of my mom's drug abuse. Um, I am, I am playing favorites because I feel horrible that my little brother's mom is no longer around in the circumstances behind it. Basically, my mom put him to bed. Uh, he's two years old. My mom put him to bed. Uh, she did some drugs. 
overdose, died. He woke up the next morning. She's already deceased, and he spent all day with her in in their house. And uh, it wasn't until later on that after that evening that my grandfather called to see if my mom was going to come up for dinner. My little brother answered the phone, but he didn't talk at all due to some of the issues uh, from my mom's drug abuse. And but my grandfather realized something was wrong, so he came over and you know, kicked the door in and, and found my mom deceased and my little brother. And then his wife of 55 years died three days later. So, um, but that here, so here Halim and I are both in our early twenties. We now have two kids and I am playing favorites and it was, it was hard. You know, you just don't understand the dynamics of things. And so we were talking about separating and I was going to go with my little brother. She was going to take our son and, and, but eventually, um, my mom's sister, my aunt stepped in and was just like, you guys are ridiculous. Why are you, why is it even coming to this? TJ can come live with us. My little brother, TJ can come live with us. And, and you know, everything is going to be okay. I, I made a promise to your mother when we were kids that if anything ever happened to her, that I would take care of her kids. That meant you. And that means TJ. So, we're done. No more discussion. So TJ went to Alaska. Um, TJ had a lot of issues growing up. Um, just, you know, severe attention deficit disorder. Ended up graduating from a continuation school. Uh, came to live with us under the, the, the premise that he was going to join the military and go through roadblock after roadblock. Then I found out that he was doing drugs. And then finally I was just like, you know what, man? Here's this contract between you and I. This is what I expect for you to live under our roof, you know, and it spelled everything out. And uh, you violate this, then you're basically telling me that you're, you know, you're, you've got it all figured out. You know how to, to live life. And unfortunately, you know, you're going to have to go do it someplace else. Two weeks, it was, it was good. And then uh, he snuck out one night and basically got caught. That was a violation of the contract. He was 19 years old at that time, or 18 or whatever. 19, almost 20, yeah. So uh, I was like, that's it, you're gone. And he couch surfed for probably two or three years. And then uh, he uh, died in a single car accident uh, two years ago, three years ago. And uh, we hosted the his memorial party. Um, and I couldn't believe how many friends that kid had show up to this thing from our little, you know, Temecula community that this, this place was packed and, you know, being in the military, going through loss and all that stuff, I kind of took the floor and what I wanted to do was keep the mood light and let's tell some funny stories. Let's have, let's have fun with this because you know, the reality of it is we lose people every single day. So let's not mourn the loss. Let's celebrate the, the life. And uh, I started telling some funny stories. And then other people started telling funny stories. And it was actually a really good time. Somebody was just like, hey, everyone knew that TJ wanted to be a rapper, right? And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, I actually have one of his raps recorded on my phone. And they went and got it. They put it up to a Bluetooth and, and 
TJ's rhyming about tater tots and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And it was just, it was an, an amazing, you know, deal. But, um, yeah, that was, that was a, uh, you know, going back to when he first came and lived with us, that was a really stressful time in our relationship. And, you know, we've had other uh, stressful times, but I think it's just kind of mine and Halima's personalities is we're not, quitters and we are going to continue to find a way to to make it right to make it work to make it good i mean two weeks ago her and i weren't even talking to each other because <laughs> we, we were so ticked off at each other over the most ridiculous thing in the world it had to do with silly string this is not a lie and uh but finally it was just you know, it just comes around to, to um, we're going to make it work, you know, so. There's a point um, that we touched on in, in the interview I did a little bit ago in regards to, you know, every relationship, every close relationship you're in, especially if it's romantic relationship, it's not always going to be easy. Hmm. And it's just a matter of finding the person that's worth it, that you want to walk through all that with. Absolutely. And, you know, meeting her at, at six months and, and getting married and, and, you know, having a kid almost right off the bat, um, in, in and of itself is not easy. Um, but kind of touching back on the fact that I think seeing both sets of my grandparents and, and that relationship that, that they had really wanted it was almost like I, I wanted to prove to myself that I was more like my grandparents and less mm -hmm. like my own mom and dad you know so and now my dad uh you know has been married now for 28 yeah. years or 30 years to uh I almost said his new wife he's been married <laughs> to her for 30 years to his new wife for 30 years anyways um and and he and I have had talks, and it was just like, you know, the last thing I ever wanted to do was, was divorce your mom. But it was, it was, we just couldn't keep living the way we were living. And I wanted to make a change, and she didn't, and, you know, and so that's, that's what ended up happening. Um, yeah. You guys have been through some stuff. I, I really appreciate you. First off, I'm sorry. That's, that's a lot to go through. Um, no, I'm just, I'm sorry no. you had to go through it. No. Um, and I appreciate you both being as honest with me as you have been, because as I told you before we ever started recording, a big part of the reason I have this podcast is to, I don't know, is to give everybody a space to like have a voice through this and right. also say, hey, these incredible people that are so strong and such inspirations that you look up to, hey, guess what? Like, they've struggled with things just like you have. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know too many people that uh, that haven't gone through. Everybody's struggle is different. Mm -hmm. And everybody deals with their struggles differently. There are, you know, we've all seen it. There's the people that are, are born with the proverbial silver spoon in their mouth that get upset over the most ridiculous things. But that is their struggle mm -hmm. that is what is you know important to them or devastating to them at that time it's like a post-traumatic stress there are people out there that believe that if you have not been to combat you 
do not have post-traumatic stress. You cannot struggle from, you know, post-traumatic stress. And, but the the very name of post-traumatic stress is after a traumatic event. What's traumatic to you, you know? And um, so it's dealing with veterans on a regular basis that are, have seen massive combat that have seen very little combat that have never been to combat um that you know males and female veterans that suffer from military sexual trauma um it's you realize that everybody's struggle is their struggle and there's no room for judgment there's only there's only room to help and to be there and to try to understand the best you can and really be a good listener when they need a listener um, and to give solid advice when that time is right. But um, my struggles are something that I, I, grew up with so to me they weren't really struggles to me they were life life mm-hmm. you know yeah that's a great way to so. yeah, yeah. So, well same thing for me you know it's I, th- I think for me one of the hardest moments in my life will ever be um I was I was pregnant and uh in between our son and our daughter and I was five and a half months along and he was gone to a school and he was gone for X amount of months. And uh, I started having a miscarriage. And after we had already heard the baby's heartbeat, after we had already felt the baby moving, um, to start a miscarriage and then not be able to save that life and he not being around, just our, you know, our son. How old was your son at that point? You know, uh, he was uh, four, four and a half. And... But to go through that, you know, it's, it, it was, for me, the hardest moment of my life. And it, nobody else was around. I didn't call my mom. I didn't call his mom. I didn't call my dad. I didn't call his dad. You know, I didn't call anybody. Nobody else knew what was going on, you know. And, but to be able to go through that and then to live through it and then the after effects, it's, uh, the saying, whatever, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Whatever doesn't break you makes you stronger. All of that, whatever. It, it's true. You literally put one foot forward at a time and you keep moving forward. It, you have to. It's life. Because whatever you've gone through, I guarantee you somebody else has. And it has impacted them differently. They might not have reacted the same way you have. You know, what the decisions you've made in your life that have brought you to where you're at, if you had made different decisions, where would your life be? Um, In, I don't know, 2013, 2014, I had uh, one of the vice presidents of HD Supply ask me, you know, if you could change any decision in your life, what would it be? If you could change your life, would you? And I, I I looked at him, I was like, heck no. I don't want to change any decision because I wouldn't be where I'm at now. I wouldn't be where I'm at today. 
and I love where I'm at. Uh, like like Rob said, you know, we we don't always get along. Uh, sometimes I don't always talk to him, <laughs> although I, I try not to do that all that often. But it's it's our life, you know, where we're at. Uh, I do love where we're at. Could we improve upon things? Of course, you could always improve upon life. Could we improve upon our decision making? Could we improve upon our you know kids raising skills? Whatever. Of of course you can. There's always room for improvement, but where you're at in life, the decisions you've already made have taken you there. And every decision that has been an obstacle that you've overcome only makes you stronger. It only makes you stronger. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There was a a deployment that he and I did together where our kids were with our in-laws, and we were both sitting in Camp Commando, Kuwait. And... You know, it was like, what the hell am I, as a mother, doing here? It's well, like We got lucky, too, because I was there, I got there prior to her, and this is before the ground war in Iraq started. And um, so I'm there, I'm, you know, doing preparations. I'm with First Force Reconnaissance Company, and uh, she shows up, and as she's going through the in-processing uh, deal, a female Marine that knows her is like, Holy, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. She's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was she's given like, orders, and I was told to deploy. It's like, yeah. okay, here I am. She's like, your husband's still a Force Recon guy? And she's like, yeah, she's actually here right now. And the lady's all, hell no, you are not going to this unit or, you know, whatever the case may be. You're going to be staying right here. There's no way we're sending both of you guys into... Uh, Iraq if this thing kicks off um, together so uh, so lucky for me probably a little a little uh, tenuous for her oh I was she, so pissed off she had to stay back but uh, but I, I think I think now we could look back on that and think that that was probably the best decision not career-wise. <laughs> <laughs> Family-wise, of course it was. Of course it was. I was so pissed off. You're going to... I've been gone from my house for almost four months. I'm literally... I flew back home from North Carolina to California to fly my kids to Florida, then come back to California so I could deploy to come out here. Now you're not even sending me forward? Are you kidding me? What the hell is going on, you know? Uh, I, I literally, I, I, I even spoke to the commanding general. I was like, I don't care. This is not right. You need to say, and he goes, no, you're not going forward. She's, she's talking to the commanding general, and, and I've already talked to him. Just like, hey. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this for me. She needs, she needs to stay back. <laughs> but I wasn't the only female they kept back. There was other ones. You yeah. know, We had a, uh, some single parents, and then we had other dual military uh, that stayed back also where they kept one spouse back and the other spouse went forward. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't the only one, but I was pissed off that that happened. But after uh, everything had happened and then these guys were coming back, you know, I was on the airfield when he, you know, touched down. And I don't think I've ever seen my husband with so much hair. He literally, <laughs> I'm holding my hands out, I don't know, 12 inches around my head here. <laughs> I never had a fro going on. I had, a dirt, never... I had a dirt fro. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh For gosh. months and months of not taking a shower <laughs> or getting a haircut. It was basically like a mullet. It was like, who the hell is this? <laughs> it was awesome. 
And I've got to ask, in regards to you being a female Marine, was that, mm-hmm. was that aside from, obviously, this instance, um, was that difficult at times? Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, one of the difficult moments in our career, uh, where it was a decision maker for me, uh, whether I just stayed in or got out, was we had uh, requested both of us to go to the drill field to be drill instructors. And uh, the first two times, the first time they denied it, said his needs of the Marine Corps, his MOS, they couldn't release him. The second time they said they couldn't release me. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So this is over a period of uh, X amount of years, you know? And then the third time I requested it, they gave me recruiting orders. I was no, you so can't mad. No, you can't be a drill instructor, but she can be a recruit, uh, recruiter. I was so, because they said they wanted more females in the Marine Corps. So they were hoping to get more female recruiters to recruit more females. Um, so in your three years at recruiting, how many females did you recruit? <laughs> One. <laughs> Everybody else was a male. Good job, Marine Corps. <laughs> Way to think that one through. It was like, oh my God. But that, but her being on uh, recruiting was, that was a tough time too because, you know. Well, first I didn't want to be there. There's a saying, there's that saying lights to lights. You know, you're the, you're, uh, you're the one that turns the lights on and you're the one that turns the lights off, right? Um, so, you know, she'd be up at four o'clock or sometimes two o'clock in the morning because she had to pick people up by, uh, or she had to drive all over the, the, the county to pick people up then to take them to San Diego to go to, to their Mets. medical stuff and, and then bring them all back. So, you know, but her average work day was probably 6 o'clock in the morning until 7 or 8 o'clock at night. It was and miserable. No kidding. Yeah. Not even so, something you wanted to be doing. Not even, especially something I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to be a recruiter. I was like, get out of here. But, she's, but she was still recruiter of the year, so, <laughs> for her district. <laughs> You know, so even though she didn't want to do it, it's not like she's like, well, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to be, a, you know, a turd about it. No, she still did it exceptionally well. Right. But the hard part was I had just finished recruiting school, just been assigned to my area, mm-hmm. and we had two kids, young kids, and he left. He was gone for seven months. The first seven, it was like, oh, my God, this is miserable. This sucks. We had just moved into this house kids you know and it was like oh don't talk to me about just moving into houses with kids and then leaving i did that during one of our deployments where i accepted all of our shipments in and then i left i was gone for seven months so he had to set up the household and get the kids situated but that was a lot later in our career maybe so that was one so so with in your instance how old were the kids then uh oh heck this was in 99 probably Probably two thousand. Probably eight and five. Yeah, eight and five. And what about when she did the same thing to you? Which was two thousand ten. Fifteen and thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, they're they're at least a little bit more. No. 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 (laughs) I'm dealing with a hormonal daughter and and a a son that thinks he's too cool for anything, right? So, but but and really PTSD. But really, the, the 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 worst part about it was I had just got back from my fourth combat deployment. Um, I had earlier that year I'd been awarded our nation's third highest award for heroism, known as the Silver Star. And then later on that year, I was also diagnosed with severe post traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. Uh, I was blown up by a guy that was wearing a suicide vest, and so. 
I am having a really hard time managing and coping with what's going on. And one of the big issues that I was having was I was sleeping maybe three to four hours a night. If that. But it was fragmented. So I would fall asleep at, you know, 8 p.m., sleep until 9.30, and then I'd be up for four and a half hours just laying there, you know, doing whatever, and then fall asleep for a half hour, wake back up for an hour, fall asleep for an hour and a half, and then wake up and go to go to work. And I would do that until I would just physically pass out from exhaustion, and, you know, I'd miss work, or I'd be asleep at work, and just, you know, all this stuff. So <clears throat> when you're sleep deprived, you don't really think clearly. Your emotions aren't um, sound and I would I would get really upset over the dumbest things and you know I got a, a 13 year old daughter that um, you know she's stressed out because now her mom is in Afghanistan and um, you know she's going through all the changes and the issues and all this stuff and her dad is is being a total you know jerk all the time or would just come home uh, pour himself a drink and then just go isolate himself because sometimes that was easier than having to deal with my kids and you know anything that they had going on or any issues that they were experiencing or whatever the case may be so that was really tough um, really tough and it wasn't until Halima comes back uh, after her seven months or nine months seven, seven month deployment mm -hmm. And, um, and then at work, I was the staff in COIC, the, the, basically I was the guy in charge of the basic recon school where we take Marines and make them recon Marines. Which is a very stressful job <clears throat> in itself. I bet. And, but I'm a very, I'm a very hands-on instructor and I was the senior guy there, uh, the senior enlisted guy. And so, you know, any time of any pool, uh, qualification type stuff was coming up I'd be one of the guys that would demonstrate everything because I wanted these young Marines to know these young recon Marines to know that hey just because you're a mass sergeant just because you're an E8 in the recon community doesn't mean that you're not still being a recondo you know uh, you don't drop your pack you are out there all the time that's what being a recon Marine is so I do the ruck runs and, and all that stuff. Um, well, being a very hands-on instructor and going through some of my issues, you know, you have these young Marines that, that you know, they, they don't have an issue with quitting where you, I would have to drown, you know, to quit. I'm not going to quit. And these kids would just walk up to me and they'd be like, hey, Matt Sergeant, I, I want to quit. I'm like, excuse me? Excuse me? You, no. Get back over there, you know, whatever. Well, there was a couple times where, you know, I keep using the term hands-on instructor while I was getting <laughs> hands-on. I was like grabbing these kids. And, uh, you know, and that's not a, first of all, that's not the proper thing to do. And second of all, um, you know, you will lose your career over that. 
and here I am a, a mass sergeant in the Marine Corps. I've been in for 15 years and you know I still had five years to go until retirement and I was getting ready to throw that all away because I was you know putting my hands on these these young Marines. So a couple of my peers came to me and they're just like, hey, you, you need to get help, man, because you're gonna throw it all away here real soon and there's nothing that we can do for you. And so I did, I went and sought help within the military and I was made to feel like I was a faker. Um, I think the, first, the very first doctor that I talked to, I felt like he was looking at me thinking that, oh, this mass sergeant is getting ready to retire He's trying to pad his medical records for a, a better disability. And the truth was, I'd only been in for 15 years. I still had five years to go. He was just looking at my rank, not my, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, that was tough. And at some point I was like, this is exactly why, you know, veterans are killing themselves because you tell us to get help. We seek out the help and then you tell us we're faking you know, or you treat us like we're faking. And that was tough. And, but I, again, I didn't quit. I stuck with it. Started getting into to different types of programs that helped. And, uh, and then I used that opportunity to look at my peers or the peer group just below me, the guys that were in charge of Marines that were still in the fight and being like, listen, man, I've been there. Do you have this symptom? Do you have that symptom? Are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing that? Yeah, bro, you have post-traumatic stress. And these are some of the things that you can go do to get help. And, uh, or you have a traumatic brain injury and these are some of the things that you can go do to get help. And um, you know, at the, at the end of my career, uh, when I was getting ready to retire, there's a lot of guys that came to me and they were like, you know what, man, I got the help I needed because you made me feel like it was okay. And that's important, you know, because specifically being a recon Marine, you think that, you know, you're supposed to be the toughest person around and asking for help is, is weakness. And it's actually the exact opposite. Asking for help is the smartest, strongest, you know, thing that you could absolutely do. Um, so, Because, yeah. <laughs> well, I think one of the, the problems that the doctors uh, see, because you don't have any visible injuries, you know, they just see a big strapping, you know, Marine. They don't see an, an actual problem, but they're not listening, you know. And I think that's a, a big issue in the military and in the VA community, you know. They see these strapping young men, strapping older men, whoever, but they see these guys um, that don't have visible injuries, even some of the ones that do. Uh, when you ask him, when you, when you ask a triple amputee, especially if he's been a Marine, and you ask him, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I'm just, I'm happy to be alive. I'm doing <laughs> fantastic. I mean, you, know? you, you hear the stories about uh, a double leg amputee. You know, he's like, hey, how do I get back? I want to go back with my brothers. You know, they need me. Yeah, you get and back in the country, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, wait, hold on, You're, you've got to deal with your issues now. You know, he doesn't think he has any issues. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. That's the idea. So uh, I think that a lot of the doctors, when they hear that, they don't hear, oh, this guy says he's doing great, 
but he's actually not. There's a reason why he's in this office, you know? So I think that's one of the biggest problems we have right now. Which is kind of crazy to me because they're, they're supposed to be trained and highly educated to be able to see through all that. To see through that, to listen, and they don't. I don't know. I, I've, <laughs> it's, it's almost like the more you are faking it, the more you get. But if you go in there and you're a little apprehensive and you're trying to remain humble about your experiences and stuff like that, they don't have any time for you. You know, I experience that every day or I, I experience that now with my VA doctor. I can't stand that guy because, you know, <laughs> he, it's just, it's just not a good experience. I don't. And I love my VA, you know, my new one. I, I, I love her. So it, it, different experiences, you know. Uh, I, I feel like mine listens to me. He can't even understand what his is saying to him, yeah. you know. So it, it, it's, it's a different transition, you know. I wanted to touch on something that Halima just said about, you know, guys wanting to go back, guys wanting to go back to Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever the case may be. Uh, through my experiences with, with Warfighter Maid, um, and then my own experiences with being a, a gunfighter, um, yeah, you want to go back. You want to go back because, believe it or not, being in combat really is easy. It's, it's, it's an, easier. It's an easy thing to do. Because in my capacity as a leader, you know, all I have to do is, is take hire's mission. I have to pass it down to my guys and make sure that my guys are being taken care of. And then doing what I need to do not to get anybody hurt and not to get myself killed. It's easy. It's a routine. You, if you're not operating, you get up in the morning, you get something to eat, you PT, you hang out, you, it's, it's easy. <coughs> and you're guys, so highly trained to do all that. And guys talk about, you'll hear guys all the time, I want to go back, I want to go back. And they want to go back because being back in reality, being back in the States is terrible. Dealing with people all day long, especially where we're from in California. Everyone in California thinks that they are the most special, beautiful flower, that they are the most important thing. Uh, of course I am. At that moment. And, you know, it, it, it's evident, like, just specifically, like, in traffic, you know, you're trying to do the right thing, turn signal on, merging over, trying to get in line, and you see 15 cars fly by you and try and force their way over at the last minute, which somebody, <laughs> don't be looking which at me. somebody in this room don't does, be looking at me. I don't is do one that. of those 15 cars. I do not do that. <clears throat> but, um, you know, or going to the store and dealing with a clerk or uh, a server or somebody that's having a bad day or being in public and um, feeling like you're being challenged. You know, like, you know, walking, walking in an area and having another uh, guy walk at you and 
the perception is, is that he's squaring up to you. Like when you are getting ready to pass each other, I always, you know, dip a shoulder or, or try and get out of that person's way. And in the past, if they didn't reciprocate that, like try and move out of my way, if they just continue to square up, I would snatch that person up by the arm and spin them around and be like, what's your problem? You know, and it's difficult. Even something as simple as being in a movie theater and watching somebody in that movie theater put their feet up on the back of the seats that somebody's sitting in <laughs> makes you want to get up and... Teach them some manners? <laughs> yeah, teach them some manners. When you're in combat, that's not an issue. Everybody is there looking out for everyone else. And being back home in reality... Everybody is there looking out for themselves. And that's a really hard thing to to deal with. So yeah, you know, they want to go back. And a lot of people can't fathom that. They're not, they don't want to go back because they want to get back into combat. They don't want to get back because, you know, they, they have a score to settle. They want to go back because it's easy. It's, it's easy easier than here. Than life. But they also have the camaraderie of all their brothers and most of the time especially like guys like robert in the reconnaissance community you know or in the infantry community uh where the era that we grew up in there are no females in those jobs now there are in some of those jobs but back then there wasn't so it's all a bunch of guys usually living together going out doing you know different missions together coming back and relaxing together. So they grow so tight that their bonds are tighter than actual blood family. Oh yeah. They want to hang out with each other. Even afterwards, they want to see each other. Heck, most of the guys we know, we all talk about having a compound together. You know, just so we can all know who our neighbors are, know that we've trusted our lives to them. That's how deep the trust goes. And you don't get that out of a combat environment. So these guys, especially when it's all just guys, they go out, they do their thing, they come back, and then they have to deal with real life when they come back to the States. They have to deal with calling a service company and being on the phone for 45 minutes just to be told, no, we can't help you today. And it's like, wait, what? Damn you cable company or whoever, you know? Exactly. Or, you know dealing with issues at school for the kids or dealing with issues inside the house, mm-hmm. you know? So you, you want me to spend my whole free day fixing sprinklers? Are you kidding me? Yeah, sprinklers got to get done too. But whatever it is, it's not as easy as their time was in a combat environment. That makes, you know? a, that makes a ton of sense, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to ask about Warfighter Mate. But before I ask about that, you touched on your Silver Star. And I'm really curious, can I ask about that? How, how, how you earned that? Sure. Um, it was our third, or my fourth combat deployment. We were in Iraq. I was the platoon sergeant for 3rd uh, Recon Battalion. <clears throat> we, our mission at that time in 2008, there wasn't a lot going on um, in 2008. So... Um, everything was basically what was termed coin operation. It was counterinsurgency um, stuff. So 
what they would do is they'd send recon marines out to try to identify places that the insurgency or the uh, terrorists were using for training facilities or areas that they were making HME, uh, homemade explosives, and which was had become kind of the new, um, that had become the new choice for IEDs and, and so on and so forth, the homemade explosives. So it was August uh, 2008. Uh, the temps during the day were probably 120 degrees. Only. So we would... We would kind of <laughs> we would kind of harbor up during the afternoon uh, to let the heat pass, and then once it started to cool down around four thirty-five, then we would you know continue on and to do our missions. We had done that uh, specifically. I was talking to one of my Marines uh, who had just found out that now Third Recon Battalion is stationed in Okinawa, Japan. So that's where we were. We lived in, in Okinawa, Japan for three years. Um, at the beginning of this deployment, my, one of my team leaders comes to me and says, Hey, I just got notified by my girlfriend that she's pregnant. And she was a local Japanese girl. And so we started to take the steps to ensure that she would be able to go on base to get, you know, medical uh, services and, and whatnot. So we figured out a way that there's a thing called marriage by proxy. So my guy, Mike, was on the phone with his girlfriend who was in Japan. And Mike had one of our Marines uh, David Day standing next to him as his girlfriend. <laughs> she in Japan had one of her friends standing next to her as Mike, and they did this marriage by proxy. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> 30 days later, we're, we're out operating. As I said, 120 degrees. Mike and I are talking about how excited he is that... Um, you know, he's getting ready to have a kid. We're giving him a hard time that he's going to have a girl and, you know, and all the things that he's done in his life are going to come back to haunt him, and, you know. And uh, it, it's cool down. We all mount back up. We're all in, in, in vehicles, Humvees and seven tons and whatnot. And Mike was in Alpha Element. I was in Bravo Element. Uh, I was the head of Bravo Element. Our platoon commander was the head of Alpha Element. And we had approximately 20-some-odd Marines on this deal. So we're cruising along, and we're in what's called the, uh, the Al Jazeera, the big desert in uh, Iraq, which is by Lake Tharthar, which is, when you look at Iraq, Lake Tharthar is the biggest body of water that's on the map. Uh, Lake Tharthar is so big, you can't see across to the other side, which, being from California, that amazes me, because every lake you can see the other side of. Yeah. So... Um, I hear over the radio, Mike call out, hey, we have some buildings over to our right-hand side, Alpha Element, let's go ahead and, and go over there, Bravo Element, I see some buildings to the north, approximately 800 uh, meters away, go ahead and move to those. Everybody rogers up. 
I watch Alpha Element split off. We continue on as Bravo Element. And I'm in a seven ton and I got a turret gunner up there. And all of a sudden he goes, I think I hear gunshots. And I turn and as I'm getting ready to say, what'd you just say? My, my comm system starts going off. It's, it's one of my really good friends that I grew up in this community with who happens to be my platoon's uh, chief communicator. He's like, B, we're in contact. We got guys inside of a building. We're being ambushed. We need your help. And uh, I'm like, hey, Roger that, I'm on my way. Turned around, positioned all of our vehicles, trying to get situational awareness of what's going on. And, uh, you know, doing, doing whatever we're doing. And I realized that basically, so what's happened is there's two buildings that are kind of situated in an L shape. And my guys made entry into this building and they got ambushed inside of it. And everybody came out. We had a couple injuries and there is a possibility that one of my guys is still in that building, but we can't be sure. And at that point I was just like, you know what? I'm done messing around, jumped back in my vehicle, looked at my driver who was just, he was a, a motor T mechanic, wasn't a recon, recon Marine or anything. And I looked at him, I was like, Gonzo, this vehicle through that wall. And I couldn't even finish the, the sentence and he's locking all the axles, he's, he's putting it in gear. I mean, he's got a big smile on his face. <laughs> he's like, yep, here we go. And uh, we put that seven ton through that wall and as we started backing out, it caused the building to collapse and everything. As we were backing out, we get absolutely rocked. And I'm not, at this time, I'm not really sure what's happening, but like all the windows are, uh, get covered with something. I don't even know what it was. It was just, all of a sudden, everything just kind of went black inside the vehicle. And, um, and then Gonzo looks at me and he's just like, vehicle's down. The, the, the air brakes have been disabled, can't move the vehicle anymore. So I jump out, <clears throat> assessing the situation, and, uh, you know, finally I'm like, you know, everyone on me, let's go make entry into the building. Um, and I happened to find Mike. Find Mike. Can you finish that for me? So they were able to get him out of the building. Uh, they were able to contain the situation, uh, you know, contain the bad guys. And uh, from my part of the story, while he was doing that, I was on leave with our kids in Korea. I didn't even know that was happening. You know, I didn't know that this was going on because I knew he was on deployment. He's been on multiple deployments. He's been on multiple combat deployments, you know, and um, it was during the kids' summer break. 
So we had talked about going to Korea. So it was like, all right, let's get kids, let's go. You know, we're going to go to Korea. And uh, I had taken the kids there for a week. We went shopping. We went to the DMZ and everything. But I didn't even know this stuff was going on. Um, and then um, when I got back to the actual hotel room, uh, some of the people, the unit that I was with there, uh, some of those guys that had rotated out already were in Iraq. So he had called for fire, you know, to come down and help. Or uh, he had called... Close air support. Close air support. And some of the guys that were listening to it recognized who he was through me. So they're like, Gunny Blanton, what do you need, you know? And, and it, was, it was amazing for me afterwards to hear his side of the story and then their side of the story. And, you know, basically what they, like one of the officers, because you usually have to be an officer in order to call that in. Uh, we have actual guys, that's their job. And these guys didn't have that, so he was the one doing it. And uh, so they asked him to identify himself. Um, they, they asked, I mean, just all sorts of different questions. Um, and they were able to get him the support that he needed at the time. Um, but, you know, we still... We still lost Mike, you know, and some of his other guys, you know, received Purple Hearts, you know, where they were injured, you know, but not fatally. Yeah, so it was it was Mike, the one that Mike walked into that building and he walked into a room probably no bigger than this room right now, which is probably 20 by 30. And there was 10 guys in there that knew we were coming because they could see the dust trail and it uh, turns out that they were a terrorist cell that was responsible for suicide bombs. And um, Mike walked in and basically the first shot that was fired took Mike out. Uh, his guys made entry, returned fire, backed out. One of the guys got shot through the leg. Another guy took a, an enemy grenade fragmentation to his heel. And, uh, and then at the end, uh, we ended up killing 12 and, and capturing one. And that one we captured was a mid-level Al-Qaeda operative that uh, was specialized in propaganda and stuff like that. So it was like propaganda like, uh, you know, you're tired. Hey, local Iraqi, I know you're tired of, of you know, the Americans being here. Um, I can show you how to honor Allah and, and, you know, get the Americans out of here type stuff. So... Um, but we finished that engagement, like Halima said, with calling in an air. Uh, it just so happened that um, my my comm chief, uh, who said, hey, we're, we're being ambushed, we need your support. After everything started coming, we were still in a gunfight, but he had a lull in action that he switched over to the, uh, to the air freak and was just any station, any station. You know, we have a troops in contact, anybody out there, and it just so happened there was a section of F-18s that were out there doing a uh, basically reconnaissance, uh, camera reconnaissance. They were just flying over areas, um, taking recordings just to see if anything had changed or whatever the case may be. And they rogered up. Um, uh, my comm chief handed the radio over to me and we called them in and basically dropped ordinance and ended that engagement. And... and uh, we were also able to get uh, 
Mike and, and everybody, the other two guys that were uh, seriously wounded, uh, ec- um, medevaced out of there. And then we personally had to stay there. Our platoon had to stay there for two days because what we had basically stumbled on was not the norm out there. And so they basically sent, you know, um, CSI, basically, you know, the, the equivalent of CSI out there. Watching them do the things that they do uh, was pretty amazing for to get, you know, DNA samples and blood samples and all that stuff. And, and it turned out just by chance that, you know, there were some blacklisted guys in, in those 12 that, that we eliminated. And, and uh, but in the end, there was uh, three Bronze Star recipients out of that. Um, four or five guys got Navy commendation medals with combat Vs. And, um, and then I was awarded the Silver Star for, for basically putting that truck through that wall and leading the guys in and Saving other yeah. lives. Yeah. So when he came back from that deployment, uh, we hadn't seen each other for seven months, you know, and I couldn't wait to get to the bus to see him because they all landed and then they all got bussed to where all the families were waiting at. And, you know, the kids are running up ahead of me and I'm like, no, I want to be first. And then his guys are getting off the bus and one after the other you know, stops to give me a hug. And I had so many of the guys telling me, you know, oh my God, your husband, you know, was doing this. Oh my God, your husband saved my life. Oh my God, your husband did this for me while they, you know, were doing this mission, you know, or some of the other missions. And it was just, I couldn't even get to him because not only was our kids already there, but all of his guys were blocking me and it was like, oh, that's great. I love you. Okay, get away from me. You know, I love you guys. Okay, get away from me. You know, I just want to get to my husband. Of course. <laughs> that that was that was a hard part. Oh yeah. You know, knowing that you know one of our guys wasn't coming back to his family, um, and then Robert actually, uh, you had to go to Congress. You know. And Mike, so that married by proxy that I was talking mm-hmm. about that you thought was amazing. The U.S. government doesn't recognize it. Only the military does. So Mike's wife, Hota, uh, could not get her citizenship. So she, because she couldn't get her citizenship, she couldn't go on base. And Mikey, uh, Mike's son that, you know, Hota was probably five months. They were married exactly 30 days to the day that he was killed. And, uh, Mikey, by, by default, was a U.S. citizen because of his dad, uh, but Hota wasn't. So if Hota wanted to come to the States, she had to get a visa. And she couldn't stay as long as she wanted. She'd you know, have to return. So Mike's mom led this deal um, to get Hota her citizenship. And uh, it was some obscure rule, uh, law that was written in the 40s that was pre- preventing this. And um, I can get into the whole politics behind it, but I won't because it's maddening. It's, let's put it this way. 
there was one congressman who wrote a bill to basically just change the law, specifically for this case. Or cases like this. Or cases like this. And another, uh, I'm sorry, it was a senator. A senator wrote a bill to change this. And another senator from California put a bill into it that applied to illegal immigrants and everything else. So it immediately got shot down. And that's what became an issue. And so I had to go to Washington, D.C. and help Mike's mom talk to different senators, talk to different congresspeople about getting this. And finally, actually on my birthday in 2012, uh, President Obama signed a uh, piece of legislation that specifically gave Hota her citizenship. Wow. So Pretty awesome. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So, I'm like speechless right now. Um, so that was kind of just the beginning of you wanting to make a difference in other people's lives. So if we want to go back now, so 2011 was a really hard year for me. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, battling post-traumatic stress. I'm, oh, by the way, when that vehicle that I was in, when the windows turned black and everything, what that was, was when we hit that, that building and collapsed and started backing out, the other portion of that building, the L-shaped portion of it, a guy wearing uh, 50 pounds of homemade explosives ran up to our truck and was trying to gain access into it. Basically what he wanted to do was open up the door, jump in the cab and, and kill us all. And, uh, uh, but he couldn't figure out how to open up the, the door because the Oshkosh uh, MTVR 7-ton has kind of a quirky little way of opening the door. Thank you very thank, much, Oshkosh. Thank Pre- God. Appreciate that. Um, so the guy couldn't get in. My guys identify, uh, identify the terrorist, and they start getting accurate fires on him, and he realizes he's not going anywhere, so he detonates himself on the side of our truck. <clears throat> and that's what uh, that's what disabled the air brake system. That's what covered the uh, the windows in in his goo. And uh, yeah. so um, so but now, 2011. now I have a traumatic brain injury from that the concussion of that blast. I have post traumatic stress from not just that instance, but just a, uh, a culmination of everything that I've done in the Marine Corps. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and another thing that people don't realize is that when you go get help for post-traumatic stress, it, they always want to start from your earliest memory of your life to see if there's anything there that could trigger events later on down in your life. So for me, it was, my mom was a drug addict, uh, an abusive drug addict, right? <clears throat> so, um, 2011, really bad year for me. Um, I'm, I'm not sleeping. I have nightmares. I just, um, uh, but, but every morning I'm getting up, I'm shaving my face. I'm putting on my uniform. I'm, I'm taking scotch tape and, and putting this smile on my face and going into work and, 
you know, trying to adult and I'm not adulting successfully. And that's when my guys are coming to me and they're just like, you need to get help. And uh, so I go get help. And the first thing. But, but hold on before you say that. Okay. I had just come back from my deployment and it was a hard transition back. You know, especially knowing I hadn't helped set up the household, knowing I hadn't been there for the kids, knowing I hadn't been there for him, uh, trying to transition back with him having the reins of everything and me trying to take over again was not a very nice time. Well, I mean, it, was, it, it added another stressor to it. And then, you know, our, our daughter really needs... She really needs emotional support, and I'm not giving it to her because I can't even support myself at this time, you know. And uh, so she's having problems. Her problems are causing me more problems, you know. And it's just, and then it's just our sons. It's just this vicious circle, you know. Our son's so self confident. <clears throat> he thinks he can do anything and everything. Whatever you can do, he can do better. You know that mentality. But it, he, he's a teenager. You know, right. it's like, come on. And then my little brother's living with us again. You know, and that was that period. That, that's yeah. his, that period. Yeah. And uh, so there's just all these factors. Everything is just yeah. not meshing. And uh, well, so when you go seek help in uh, the military or even at the VA, if you're a veteran, ninety percent of the time, the very first thing they're gonna they're gonna want to do is put you on all kinds of medications, right? And in my therapies, I was like, I don't want meds. I'm, I'm a self-fixer. Just, I just need to come here and talk to you. And at some point, you're going to say that one thing that I need to hear that's going to make it all click, and I'm going to be able to fix it, right? But right now, I, I can't. You know, my mind is just going a million miles a minute with, with two million different things. And I just need to talk to you to help, you know, figure it out what I need. Well, finally, my therapist, after seeing her for over a year, was um, used my family against me. <clears throat> and she basically said, if you're not going to do meds for yourself, do it for your, your kids. Because one of my issues was how I knew I was destroying my relationship with my, my kids, but I couldn't stop it. I couldn't fix it. And she's like, well, if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for your kids. Take these meds for your kids. I was like, all right, fine. So I go on antidepressants and anti-anxiety and all kinds this of other crap. Yep. Well, also in this, I'm not the angel in, in you know, all of this. Um, I'm drinking a lot. And this is how I'm coping. I'm self-medicating with alcohol. And while I don't think I'm, I was like absolutely out of control because I was still functioning normally every day. You were. For the listeners, she just gave me a dirty look like it wasn't true. No, I just gave you a smirk. Oh, whatever. <laughs> You're right. It was a smirk. <laughs> it wasn't working, but you thought it was. Whatever. Well, I was still freaking, you know, crushing ruck runs and yes. running 8 to 12 miles a day and yes. on three hours of sleep a night. But anyways. Yes. Imagine um, how stressed out you would be if you hadn't been doing yeah. that. Um, long, long story short, uh, on, on all these meds, I'm still drinking, uh, I'm, I'm sleep deprived and, uh, I go through this rigmarole at night, wake up from a, a nightmare, um, 
and I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of, I'm tired of this. I can't keep living like this, and uh, and then I can't keep living like this turns to I can't keep living, and it's um, when you're when you're contemplating suicide. Um, I'm sh- people don't understand that it's it is the most unselfish thing that you can do at that time. At least that's your thought process. You know, here I am. I've got my wife of you know at the Excellent time years. fifteen years, sixteen years, laying next to me, um, who I'm absolutely just putting through the ringer. I got both my kids that uh, you know. My daughter needs something that I can't give her. My son is an absolute jerk, probably because I'm more of a jerk. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, the only thing that I'm really good at anymore is just taking care of the guys that work for me at work, and that's about it. You know, and w- what kind of self-worth do I have at this point? So here I am, I'm just this massive burden on ev- everybody. Everybody would be so much better off without me. And that's really the thought process. And um, uh, fortunately, she didn't let it happen. And, and we kind of took that negative and turned it into a positive by starting an organization to, that can relate to vets and their different issues, which is Warfighter Made. How, um, did, how did you turn that corner? Because that's, I mean, that's a big step to take to, from going to contemplating suicide to yeah. saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to turn all this around and I'm going to make an organization that's going to help people that are struggling with this. I can't speak for everybody, but I think, you know, when you're really that close to ending it, you can, that, that is your rock bottom and you can only go up from there. You're either going to do it or you're going to rise above it, you know? And I know that's not the case for everybody, but that was my case. And again, we've talked earlier, you know, we were talking about that I'm not a quitter. She's not a quitter. And so we kind of had this, this, you know, kumbaya and started talking about different things that we could do to, to improve the situation. And those were the steps that we started to take. And realizing that, some, not all, but some of the steps were actually working that let's apply this to other vets. Let's start a nonprofit. Let's do this. Let's give back. So <coughs> um, the idea of a nonprofit wasn't mine. Um, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time. And... Um, but once it was presented to me, I was just like, yes, absolutely. This is what we need to do. And then there were some other circumstances and, and stuff involved that um, really made me put 100% into it. Um, so we slapped the table on Warfighter Made in late two, uh, 2012, <coughs> excuse me, and um, became a nonprofit in 2013. And here we are today. And how many people have have you helped already? So, I mean, through this organization, we've built. So, 
So what the organization do, does is we adapt and customize vehicles for catastrophically wounded warfighters. But we also do adrenaline therapy. That's with our Polaris razors. We take vets, put them behind the wheel of a high-performance off-road machine, and let them go out there and just have fun. What we realized is when you're sitting behind that wheel and you're hauling butt over the desert or over jumps or whatever the case may be, you don't really have a lot of time to let your triggers, your stressors affect you. Oh, please, they're not even letting, they don't, they don't even have triggers when they're, you know, behind a vehicle. They're relaxed. Their adrenaline is going so much, it kind of st- uh, simulates that combat feeling. It's go, 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 go. Oh, fun, 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 fun. And then in the, in the mindset, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think that's the, 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 the mentality where they're not worried about life. They're not worried about their problems. They're not worried about the stressors. They're literally one with their machine. And uh, to see a triple amputee get into one of our Polaris razors and have him drive his wife, be able to drive his wife because that Polaris razor has been customized, you know, to adapt to his injuries and then have them go out on a ride by themselves. It's phenomenal to me. Then have them come back and look at us and be like, I never thought I'd be able to do this after my injury. Um, is It's amazing, you know, and, and every success story is another driving factor into continuing with this mission. And so to go back to your question, uh, we've built approximately th- uh, 13 vehicles for catastrophically wounded warfighters in the five years. Um, and we could actually, we figured it out, we could probably, or we definitely could do one vehicle every six weeks, but we're funded limited, funding limited, um, which is also the reason why um, we're all volunteers because to pay somebody takes money away from building Helping. a project from, for somebody or giving them adrenaline therapy. And like Halima was saying, the, the adrenaline aspect of it, you know, imagine, imagine you're in the military, you're in a combat zone, you're, you're, you know, you're on a convoy and an IED goes off or you get ambushed or something happens and you're, you're literally in a fight for your life. You're, you're trying to protect everyone around you that relies on you to do your job and so on and so forth. And then you come back to the States and people are, are, you know, you're holding the door open for somebody and they don't even say thanks. Right. There's life back in the States can become mundane. You can't get that adrenaline rush that your body craves. And if you were in a combat MOS where, you know, that was your deal the majority of the time that you were in country, forget about it. You're not going to be able to replicate that when you come back, which is why a lot of Marines or a lot of veteran or a lot of uh, military members, they come back and they buy that 200 horsepower motorcycle (laughs) or they buy that high performance muscle car and you know, they're screaming down the freeway at 200 miles an hour because that's what is replicating that rush that they were getting in combat. 
and the rush that they get used to, you know. Well, I, the rush, the the rush that they crave. That that they crave because it happens so often when you have that spike in adrenaline, uh, and then you go back and it calms down, and then you have that spike again, and then again, you you learn to like that feeling, mm-hmm. you know. It's uh, my combat is nothing like his combat. Please, you know. I was on, in Afghanistan, I was on in Helmand, you know, but we were sitting at a big old base, you know. There was times we would go out, our unit would go out on convoys, our unit would go out on the helos and everything, uh, the Ospreys, you know, and we'd get shot at, but we lost one of our guys who was an EOD tech, explosive ordnance disposal. Um, we didn't lose him in a firefight, you know, or anything like that, so it's not the same thing. You know, but every time we go through a different situation, we get that adrenaline spike, we learn to crave the same thing. Right. Just not as much as, like, him and his guys do. You know, so when, but when we come back, it's, it's, it's so much, life is so much smoother, slower, mm-hmm. calmer, and it's not, it, it doesn't, I don't know. So instead of having those, those military members literally out there trying to, you know, hurt themselves on these motorcycles or in these cars or skydiving or whatever it is that their 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 new fix is you know we're trying to give it to them in the relatively safe environment of off-road in you know fully roll cage machines you know harnesses to keep you you know in in the seat and uh and i couldn't we've done hundreds of veterans that way but then there's also the third and fourth order effects of sometimes some of my proudest moments are when the spouse contacts us it was just like i don't know what you did but my warfighter is is like they used to be you know and that's that's important because i know firsthand how much my spouse means to me and what she puts up with and it's not intended it's not intentional it's it's just the way it is and so we're trying to develop ways of not only taking care of vets but also giving a little appreciation giving a little relief giving um, back to their spouses and um, because everything with us has to be full circle. We just did Shoot It Live 2018, which is a fundraiser for Warfighter Made, put on by Tac Gas Fuel Your Brand. Fuel Your Brand. And uh, we brought a female vet out that um, has some issues uh, with uh, military sexual trauma. And she was a nervous wreck at first because she just doesn't like being around so many people. And, but after talking to her and just basically letting her know that, hey, you're in control. If you're not comfortable, I'll send you back to California. No problem at all, you know? This is supposed to be fun, not stressful, you know? And she's like, no, no, I, I need to be out here. This is, this is good for me. And I was like, okay, well, you know, if you just need to take a break, come inside here, relax, you know, I'll keep everybody out, just do what you got to do, but do me a favor, just talk to me a little bit, just let me know, 
let me know because I don't know exactly what your signs are for, you know, your anxiety and all that stuff. And she was like, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Well, today, as we were all saying goodbye, one of the other guys basically said, um, she can't believe that there is an organization that exists to help vets that doesn't expect anything in return. And I was like, you know, it's, it's actually kind of sad that that's the how, case. yeah, that people feel that way, you know, because, you know, we're here to help and, and take care of and prevent uh, suicides and stuff like that. And there are organizations out there that expect something in return for that. And it's, it's really, that's really sad. But. So Warfighter Mate, it is a 501c3 nonprofit, okay? It's fully ran by volunteers. Uh, all the board members are volunteers. There are no paid employees, no full-time paid employees whatsoever. Um, no paid employees, period. No. There you go. You know, it's like, oh my God. Um, and all the different events that we do, uh, every we ask for volunteers, and anyone can volunteer to help. You don't have to be a veteran to help us, you know. Um, all these events, there's no cost to the yeah, vets. There's no cost to the vets. How can people? How can people find out about the events? How can they donate? Like, uh, first and foremost, the, you know, the easiest way what. <laughs> When people want to know, like people come up to me and they're like, hey, we want to donate some money. I'm like, that's fantastic, you know. Um, but do you understand who we are and what we do? And they're like, oh, no, well, you know, we just really like who you are. We've seen you on TV or this, that, whatever. We just want to. And I was like, no, I want you to understand what it is that we do because I just don't want your, your $10 donation. I want you to donate $10 a month for the rest of your life because you know what we do and you like what we do and you believe in us, you know? And, um, but I encourage everybody to go to social media, look at our Facebook page, our Instagram, both are at warfighter made and, um, go to YouTube, type in warfighter made, look at our videos that are on there. We probably have three dozen uh, different videos produced by ourselves, produced by, um, um, well, so we were on TV last year for 16 episodes of Monster Energy Supercross, where we had these these little three minute vignettes where we were we built a a brand new Toyota Tacoma, and it was supposed to be the ultimate Supercross. Um, Toyota. So we were designing it to be able to take vets out who ride dirt bikes, get them out to the, the, the riding area, make it really easy for them to unload the vehicle, uh, the, their motorcycles, and then have the, the vehicle also support their gear and, and maintenance items and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and, um, the whole, sh the whole show we were trying to make the viewers believe that Warfighter Made was building this machine for ourselves. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. 
it was all a lie. We were building this for a combat wounded soldier who, you know, used to race dirt bikes before he got injured. And, um, uh, but he didn't know that he was getting this truck. <laughs> and so we had to come up with this, like this ruse that, hey, his name was Craig Hall. I was like, hey, Craig, you know, um, I, I know you used to ride. I know you've, you've won some races with another organization that we love called uh, Race for the Wounded. Um, we're doing this thing with, with Monster Energy Supercross. Will you be a part of it just to tell your story about, you know, being a, a, a guy who rode, then answering the nation's call to serve, then getting injured, and then, you know, now kind of being an adaptive athlete as a single leg amputee, still riding and so on. He's like, oh yeah, I can't wait. Well, at the, the very last episode, um, we were out in Johnson Valley and California. kind of doing this thing. And, and uh, at the very end, it was just like, okay, well, you know, the moment everyone's been waiting for, let's check out this, this 2017 Toyota Tacoma. We bring it out, everyone's all excited. And then it was just like, well, hey, Craig, this is yours. And he was pretty taken aback. <laughs> we made him call his parents on the show. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty funny. He was both, he was pretty much speechless the whole time. He's like, I don't even know what to say right now. So that, That's the one thing I love about Warfighter Made. Some of the recipients knew they were getting something done, you know, to their vehicle. Uh, they were getting it customized or adapted to their injury. And then uh, some of the guys, girls, you know, some of the vets had no idea they were getting anything. Uh, our last uh, vet, his his wife knew that he was getting something, you know. So this this the guy's a general. <laughs> this guy's a double leg amputee, and he's the type of guy that when you go up to him, he without fail he will be like, "Oh, Rob, you know, give it to somebody more deserving." I know somebody more deserving here, you know, blah blah blah, right? It was like, like, "Oh my God, John, how? Jeez, man, you know." So I went to his wife and I was just like, "Hey." John's going to be our next recipient. He's being a jerk about it, you know, or he just won't, you know, he won't play along. Um, help me keep this a secret from him, but this is what we are going to do. And so we finish the, we finish the vehicle. We get everybody to come out to do this reveal, but I announce the reveals on social media. And normally what I do is like, Hey, come out and, and, you know, get, meet, meet America hero, um, so-and-so. But this time I have to be very vague because right. I can't... You can't say who it is. I can't say who it is. And, well, the morning that we're doing the reveal, I still have no idea how I'm going to pull this off. Because traditionally what we do is we have the vehicle under wraps. People are going in and out around the vehicle the whole time, but they just can't see it because it's under a cover. And then when we do the reveal, I bring the recipient up, mm -hmm. talk to him, introduce him to the, to the audience, and, and then we unveil the machine. Well, the recipient's already there. <laughs> but he doesn't know it. <laughs> but he doesn't know it. So how are we going to do So I came up with this elaborate plan that this guy was coming in from Texas um, and... Uh, he's going to arrive, and then we're going to do the, the reveal. 
And then I told everybody that, hey, he just called me. He's running into a little bit of traffic. He's going to be late. So let's go ahead and get everybody around. So when he shows up, you know, everyone's already here, ready to go. And then, uh, then I came out again and I was just like, oh, he, he's getting here close, but it's, we're way over time. So let's just go ahead and bring the machine out. And then when he shows up, just we'll all surprise him with the machine while he's there, right? So we bring the machine out. Everyone's looking at it. Everyone's clapping. They're like, this is amazing. I'm like, okay, he's right around the corner. Go start clapping. So everyone starts clapping and, and, uh, you know, everyone's kind of like looking around like, so where's he at? Where's this guy? Because even the people in the audience don't know what's going on. Not everybody knew. <laughs> so I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. No one's coming. The recipient's already here. He just doesn't know it. And everybody's looking around like... And everyone's like, really? And he actually tapped his wife, right? And he's looking at her and he's like, who is it? And she's trying to record. She's trying to record him. You know? Oh and he's, he's like, I wonder who it is. And she's like, I, I don't know. You know? So... It was awesome. So finally, you know, we announce it's him. And he's like, no way. And so, yeah. But it was good. Now With the grin on his face, okay? Oh, I bet. For him to get in the vehicle and then take it around for a lap was just phenomenal. And, you know, you know being a double A, we, we have our own proprietary hand control system that we put in vehicles like that. Um, Polaris donated the machine. Uh, KMC donated the wheels. BFG donated the tires. Uh, Desert Works did the cage. Um, PRP did the doors. Ba Designs donated the lights. We had this really cool thing called a hooker rack, which this guy's a hunter. This hooker rack attaches to the back of the machine. It's got a winch on it. So if he, if he bags a deer, um, he can drive the machine up to the deer, get, use the winch to pull the deer onto this, this device called the hooker rack. And then with that winch, it'll, it'll kind of uh, sandwich, it'll sandwich the, the game in this device and then he can drive it off to, to field dress it or, or to the next um, days. Did PRP bring the seats or the uh, <coughs> doors? Seats. Okay. So, um, Man. Yeah. It really is incredible what you So right saw. now we, we're building a 67 Camaro for a combat wounded soldier. He's a single leg amputee. It's actually the very first, um, it's the very first combat wounded veteran that we met when we started Warfighter Made. Uh, we met him at a car show in 2013, and uh, he had the 67 Camaro. We always knew it was going to be a project. We just were trying to raise the funds to get it done. And uh, uh, he called us up one day, and he's like, hey, I'm moving from California to Texas. Um, will you do me a favor? I don't want to move my car to Texas only to bring it back. Will you hold on to it for me? We're like, yeah, sure, no problem. So it's been a really long, we've had this car since 2014, <laughs> 2015. But because it's such a big project, mm -hmm. uh, because they're doing so much work to it and everything is being built from the ground up for him, it's taken a lot longer than we anticipated. Yeah. That's going to be incredible though. Oh, yeah. it's, it's already beautiful. It yeah. is so, and it's not even done yet. It is absolutely beautiful. I'm, I'm assuming you guys are going to post pictures on social media, right? Yes. Yeah. Eventually? Okay, yeah. good. We're actually doing the unveiling for it. Tentatively, we're doing it in December. Okay. 
And then also in December, we're, we've been building an 83 Harley-Davidson uh, Super Glide for a combat wounded double leg amputee. I was going to say, don't say his name. No, I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't know. Um, <laughs> his wife, so he's as a double leg amputee, he's already been riding. Um, but his last bike, somebody pulled out in front of him and he T-boned him. And so now his wife has him convinced that she doesn't want him riding anymore. The truth is, is that she's in cahoots with us because <laughs> so, he would buy a So motorcycle. he doesn't buy another yeah, motorcycle. Yeah, he would buy a motorcycle right now. So, <laughs> so she's in cahoots. Where she's just trying to get enough time to finish this thing so we can give it to her. And then our next, we, our, our next on-deck project that we haven't started yet, but we already have the vehicle, our vice president is a combat-wounded triple amputee, both legs above his knees, and he's missing his right arm right below his shoulder. He has a 71 Nova. What's amazing about the 71 Nova is that this Marine's father bought this car brand new coming out of Vietnam. And unfortunately, his dad died two years ago on a, a VA operating table. But uh, that is Warfighter Mate's next project. And we will start that project uh, probably early next year. And we will have it done by the end of the year. So, so all the proceeds that we raise from all the different events, from everyone you know, donating, from the sponsors that donate, 100% of the proceeds go to these different projects. Nobody gets paid. We are not getting paid to do this. We are doing it to give back to our injured vets. You know, that's what I want to be able to get across. 100% oh, yeah. of the proceeds that we raise go to help our injured all, vets. Like all of our overhead, our building rent, our utilities, all that stuff, that's mm -hmm. all covered by Polaris. Mm -hmm. Polaris donates two machines to yep. us a year just so we can sell them. And that money is what we use to pay for our rent. Yep. So when people come to me and say, hey, when I donate, if I, if I donate this dollar to you, how much of it, does it goes to the vets? And I was like, 100% of all private donations, 100% yep. go directly to the mission of adrenaline therapy or adapted and customized vehicles. So. I'll link, I mean, when I when I post this episode, I'll link everything in the description. I'll link everything in Instagram and Facebook, things like that. So those listening can know how to either find out more or hopefully donate, definitely donate. Um, thank you guys so much for doing this. You guys are truly some of the most incredible people I've ever met. And I'm so, so lucky that it, you said yes to this. It's this guy. It's this no, guy over no, here. It's, it's definitely he is very, you. very, very, very giving. You know what's amazing about, <laughs> really about our career, I mean, our, our, our lives, is that there's no way I could do what I do if it wasn't for her. And not for her allowing me to do it, is that there's so much behind the scenes stuff that she handles for me that, and I'm not talking like work related, I'm talking about like emotionally supportive and, and so on and so forth that I, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't even be here right now. And second of all, you know, a lot of people come to me and are like, hey Rob, you've, you've changed my life or spouses come to me and like, you, you've changed my warfighter's life. And I was like, well, you know what? I know what that feels because I've had somebody that changed my life, and that's <laughs> brownie points. <laughs> and that's and that's my wife with her ridiculous laugh. 
Ah, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know you love it. <laughs> it's a true partnership. It's really a true partnership. It is. It really is. And we've been, been very, very fortunate, very lucky. Very we, we have been fortunate in our lives. So. Yep, most definitely. <laughs> well, thank you again, Wolf, for being here. Thank you.